Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Since 2017, an annual Digital Inclusion Week has been held to raise awareness about the digital divide that exists in the U.S. It's an initiative of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, which works to raise awareness around home Internet access, access to Internet-enabled devices, and the importance of local technology training and support programs. Today, where we live, we talk about how public libraries are working to help residents get improved access to the Internet and learn necessary online skills to help them in their daily lives. Just ahead, we talk to the American Library Association, also known as the ALA, and we hear from the Hamden Public Library and from a career navigator for East Hartford Works. It's a town-run program located in the East Hartford Library. You can join us. Our number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, most of us have heard of the digital divide, referring to those who have stable, affordable access to high-quality Internet and those who do not. But the issue is multilayered and also involves digital discrimination. Congress has asked the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, to create rules to prevent and penalize digital discrimination by broadband companies, rules that impact communities of color. To explain, joining us now on the phone is Jessica Rosenworcel, Chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, Chairwoman Rosenworcel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Now, I I understand earlier this year, the FCC announced the launch of a cross-agency task force to prevent digital discrimination. Can you define what that is? Sure. Well, I can tell you about the task force. Uh, We started it in February, and the idea is to bring together people who understand communications technology and can also develop ideas to combat discrimination so that we have equal access to broadband across the country, regardless of zip code, income level, race, religion, or national origin. You mentioned zip code, and you've said that you know your zip code should not determine access to broadband. The pandemic has proven it's a must-have. It is like electricity or water. And so, why are we still in this place where there, you know, there is not um, equal access to something that is so vital to everyone's lives, God, Chairwoman? Well, I'm glad you started there with the pandemic, because I think the pandemic really just made this issue crystal clear for everyone, including folks in Washington. We've got a digital divide in this country that is very real and unacceptably large. We have just too many places where high-speed communications networks do not reach or where people are unable to get online or afford consistent broadband service. And when you look at what happened to us during this pandemic, how so much of modern life went online, you realize we've got to figure out a way to make it accessible to all of us, 100% of us. And the good news is that the FCC has been working with Congress 
to set up more initiatives to do that than ever before in our history. Our task force to look at digital discrimination is one of them. We are also mapping the state of broadband in this country, and we've set up a program to promote broadband affordability called the Affordable Connectivity Program. So we're firing on all fronts to try to address this problem. I understand that the task force is going to help uh, model or develop policies and best practices for states and local governments. And so I'm wondering, you know, will there be teeth to these policies uh, so that, you know, there are penalties for Internet service providers, you know, who still limit, uh, you know, access to the Internet uh, in particular communities because of return on investment? Yeah, we've never had policies like this before, but the bipartisan infrastructure law gave the FCC new authority in this area. So we've got three tasks ahead of us. First, we've got to define what digital discrimination looks like. And that's hard. We've got uh, expert advisors who are serving on a council. We're running a notice of inquiry for the public. So we're digging in deep. We are also looking to identify model codes and practices in states and cities across the country. Uh, Every state and city is a laboratory of democracy. Let's find the uh, best policies and see if we can start offering them in a kind of off-the-rack way to everyone across the country. Mm. And then we are also directed to set up a complaint process that if there are individuals or communities who feel that there's been digital discrimination and that they don't have access to this infrastructure that's so essential for modern life, they can file complaints with us and we can take action. I think that's where the teeth, as you say, comes in. But these are all tall tasks and we're hard at work on them right now. You're hearing Jessica Rosenworcel, chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, as we talk about uh, digital inclusion and efforts to make sure that everyone, no matter their background, uh, where they live, has equal, affordable access to the Internet. Coming up, we're going to learn more about also connecting residents with needed computer skills uh, to help them in their daily lives. Uh, but uh, Chairwoman, you know, I wanted to, to go back. When we think about uh, digital access, and I know we've done shows about this in the past where it's often framed as a rural-urban broadband divide, and the solution is related to infrastructure. But, you know, our what we wanted to hear more about is, you know, that this is more complicated, and it's due to something called digital redlining. Can you describe that for listeners? Yeah, I think what's become apparent to policymakers is that the digital divide has more nuance than just being an urban-rural divide, where urban and suburban communities have infrastructure and therefore they don't have any issues. And rural communities, well, we might just have to build some more infrastructure in those places so that we reach more homes, businesses, and farms. I think what we've exposed is that there's also an affordability element to the digital divide. And we've got households, both in rural and urban communities, that are struggling to pay for groceries, pay for gas, and keep that monthly internet bill up and running. And that has real consequences because shutting off that bill is, like you say, akin to shutting off of electricity. It makes it hard to operate in the modern world. It makes it hard to keep up with work, with healthcare, with education, with getting information you might need about what's happening in your community. So we set up a program that's $14 billion called the Affordable Connectivity Program to address that element of the digital divide. And it uh, it's a... Um, It's a big deal. We've never had an affordability program for broadband in the United States before. And right now we have more than 14 million households nationwide on it. And I looked up as a Connecticut native, I dutifully looked up the numbers. We have more than 122,000 households in Connecticut that rely on it right now. 
And we're going to learn more about how libraries are helping connect residents with this program you mentioned, the Affordable Connectivity Program. Again, uh, it's helping low-income households pay for broadband service and internet plans for devices. You know, that's a big deal when we think about you know how much it costs per month, and you know that can be take a lot out of a family budget that may be on a fixed income, Chairwoman. Absolutely, and. I just think, like you said earlier on, this is no longer, you know, nice to have. It's need to have for everyone everywhere. So let's set up programs to make sure that there's no student who's left behind, struggling, not able to do their nightly schoolwork. You know, there's no one who can't look for a job or keep up with their health care appointments because they don't have bandwidth. We have the tools to solve those problems, the Affordable Connectivity Program as part of it, and then making a nationwide commitment to, you know, reach those places in the country that don't have adequate infrastructure is also an important part of it. Well, the New Haven Independent reported in August that Connecticut and four other states were selected to receive more than $400 million through the American Rescue Plan to boost Internet access. And Connecticut was approved by the Treasury to use about $41 million of that federal grant money on infrastructure necessary to get what the state determines as underserved communities' access to upload and download speeds of at least 100 megabytes per second. Is that enough, uh, you know, again, to help bridge these divides? I'm wondering if you can give us perspective there. Well, I think the truth is our world is moving real fast and digital technology feels like it's moving faster. So we're going to have to be in this continuous race to make sure we build the infrastructure that we need so everyone has a fair shot and 100 megabits down, as you mentioned, is the right speed for right now. But I, I hope we can recognize that we are going to continuously have to invest in this infrastructure, keep it upgraded, and make sure that it's available in an equal way to communities across the country. And what are you hearing from local communities? Is it the fact that you get this infusion of federal dollars that will help with that investment to sustain it? I mean, is this something that local and state governments can do on their own without the infusion of federal dollars, Chairwoman? I think a lot of this is a mix. We have a lot of private sector businesses who've been able to build out infrastructure, but we have places in this country where that infrastructure didn't reach like we've been talking about, sometimes it's the rural communities, but sometimes it's also, you know, three streets over in an urban area where the network just, uh, they never really managed to upgrade it. And I think we have to know with much greater accuracy where those deficiencies are in this country, because we really have to address them. Like I said, let's use this pandemic, the federal funding that came in its wake to address these issues. I think this is the infrastructure challenge that the United States faces for this century. And like we dealt with electricity last century, we got to get it to everyone everywhere. And I think the new initiatives that were started during the pandemic are really important tools to use. And some cities and states are going to use them differently than others. But I think that um, we're going to have a patchwork of approaches, but we've got to figure out how that patchwork covers every corner of this country. And getting back to uh, this task force to prevent digital discrimination, there's a deadline uh, to get these rules in place. I'm wondering if you can update our listeners there. There is. Yeah. uh, November 2023. So we have a lot of different things in motion. Like I mentioned, we started this public inquiry. We've set up a task force to address these issues. We um, also set up a communications equity and diversity council. So we have outside experts giving us advice on these matters. They're complicated, they're hard, and uh, we want to, you know, make sure we hear from voices from all across the country as we figure this out, because it's important that we come up with 
good policies, good definitions, uh, good model policies that states and cities can look to, but also a complaint process that is meaningful for those who feel that they need this, that they've had a problem and it needs to be redressed. And then looking forward, you know, getting back to the digital redlining conversation we had, do you think there should be a federal law that prevents this uh, from happening, that, you know, puts more pressure on Internet service providers? I think it's clear that we it's unacceptable if you've got communities that are left behind because of who they are or where they live. And I think we have to nationwide make a commitment to say there's some baseline we're going to try to make sure is available to everyone. At this moment, most of the new legislation recommends uh, 100 megabits down being a national standard. And I think of it as a 100-100 policy, 100 megabits down to 100% of us. I think that's our standard for right now, and we've got to keep at it until we make it happen. You're hearing Jessica Rosenworcel again, chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. She's also a Connecticut native. We thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you. It's always good to be able to uh, be on the radio and also appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, to folks in Connecticut. Thank you. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. Coming up, we're going to learn more about the role public libraries play to help residents access the Internet and learn the digital skills they need in their daily lives. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today, we're learning more about efforts on the national and local levels to improve digital equity or equal access to the Internet. On Wednesday, the Hartford Public Library hosts a panel discussion with local community groups that are working to help connect residents with devices, training, and low-cost quality internet plans. More information at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. One of the panelists will be Tracy D. Hall, who leads the National American Library Association, also known as ALA. She joins us now on the phone to the show. Thank you for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. 
So from the ALA's standpoint, can you talk about digital literacy and digital inclusion and how you're seeing libraries across the country bridge these divides, Tracy? Absolutely. Well, there are over 17,000 public libraries across the country. And in the aggregate, public libraries are the largest public provider of access to the Internet. But not only access to the Internet, the largest digital literacy instructor in the United States. And so public libraries are access points for everyone listening. So if there's anyone uh, who is feeling that they don't have adequate access or they don't have the skill set necessary to not only consume information, but to create information and to be in dialogue with the rest of the digital world, their nearest public library is the place that they can go. We're going to be hearing from a local library uh, like others that had to pivot during the pandemic uh, to help their patrons. Like you said, so many who rely on libraries to help access the Internet, but also to help to learn how to use and to have necessary skills, uh, Tracy. And I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, how that can be sustained even when funding from the federal government uh, will be running out uh, related to these pandemic efforts. Yes, well, definitely. The American Library Association um, was very instrumental in fighting for uh, the inclusion of digital infrastructure and broadband access in in the ARPA legislation. And so we take very seriously uh, the fact that access to broadband is a human right. We're at a point in our digital evolution where the three most critical quality of life indicators, which are access to education, access to employment, and access to public health rely on sophisticated comprehension as well as digital access. So we want to make sure uh, for the American Library Association that we move and evolve to a place where we actually have a fee-free internet. We believe in the internet for all. So I, I think that what we're beginning to see is that others are recognizing the place of libraries. A lot of times when people think about libraries, of course, they think about um, reading and reading instruction, literacy. Uh, that's our bread and butter. But uh, as um, I was just in Washington uh, the other day for Department of Education uh, conversation about digital inclusion, and it was stressed that digital access is the new pencil. And that hit me because it is. So we're at a point where we're talking about this being a 911 issue because there are so many who have been left behind. And that's what libraries do every day. We bridge the information gap and we bridge the education gap. Mm-hmm. You're hearing Tracy D. Hall here where we live. Executive Director of the American Library Association. We'd love to hear uh, from you out there about uh, how you're using your libraries, you know, if you have been helped uh, uh, to get access to the Internet or even uh, learning uh, necessary skills uh, to help you, whether it's for your education or to connect with employment. Our number here, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And there's also this, um, I guess, importance uh, to distinguish digital literacy or learning computer skills that uh, can help people in their daily lives, but also media literacy. You know, yes. Has that become a focus when we think about the polarized times we're living in, Tracy? 
Absolutely. Right. So and in some ways, the two go together, uh, although they are distinctly different. And I want to before I answer that question, I really want to get to uh, I know that when you were talking to Chairwoman Wilson Wurzel, you were asking about a concrete definition for digital redlining or information redlining. And I want to share that with you. I've written a lot about information redlining in my career, and I describe it as the systematic denial of equitable access to information, to information services, and to information retrieval methods. And those retrieval methods can either be broadband or devices, et cetera. And so we know we have a long way to go. Just as we have communities that have been redlined historically, and that's led to a lot of generational poverty, we have communities that also have been disinvested when it comes to information access and technology. And that leads to information poverty, which contributes to generational poverty. So I just wanted to give you a a definition uh, there. But when we talk about the difference between media literacy and digital literacy, the two in some ways today really rely, um, they're related to each other, but media literacy is really the ability to understand whether or not the information source uh, that is providing the information or the article, et cetera, is actually credible, if it's balanced, if it's fair, if others have had an opportunity to vet this information before it made its way to you. So when we look at authoritative sources, we want to be looking for um, who vetted this? Who, who, are there a, is there a larger body that says this is credible and believable as opposed to gossip, rumor, or innuendo? When it comes to in, uh, information or digital literacy, we're talking about people who not only can access information, but can also interpret and apply it. As a librarian and as someone who works in information services, I see the ability to interpret and to apply information as really the trajectory that we're looking for. That's the continuum. Mm. It's really interesting to, to hear you um, walk through those points with us, Tracy, because, again, when, when someone's going to the library and maybe they just need, you know, some computer time and they sign it out, but the, the idea that they can also rely on librarians to help them, you know, make sure that they're finding the right sources and to, you know, to be able to have the tools to know, you know, what they can rely on uh, when they're on the Internet. And that's important as well. Absolutely. And I think that one of the concepts that we've been talking a lot about, uh, and we're going to be talking about this tomorrow, uh, is the idea of digital navigators. Uh, there was someone who said to me, I don't need just to learn how to go online. I really need someone to help me find the kinds of resources that I need there and how to interact with them. And that idea of digital navigation support, uh, because some one thing we haven't talked about so much is that one of the reasons why we have very limited digital access and digital literacy is because we also have very high levels of low literacy for adults. We are still battling with adult literacy. And so sometimes there are some people who are going to need more support when they go online. There are a large number of people. The Pew Research Center tells us that at least 10% of people in the United States today have never gone online. And there is another 19% uh, that say they go online very, very infrequently. So even though uh, digital access and even though the internet itself is ubiquitous, it's all around us, there are people who are not participating 
communicating. Some of it is because of their reading scale level. Sometimes uh, some of the things that they want to navigate are not written or available in their uh, native language, the language in which they feel most comfortable. Uh, and then there are other barriers as we're talking about devices, et cetera. But I, I think that if we just talk about digital access without talking about the ability to interpret and apply information, we miss a lot and we miss the possibility of making this a transformative moment. If we just give people access to the internet and we don't look at how it can support their life and their quality of life outcomes, then we really uh, are not uh, doing as much as we can. Again, you're hearing Tracy D. Hall, Executive Director of the American Library Association. She's the keynote speaker at the Hartford Public Library tomorrow. Uh, That will be followed by a panel discussion focused on digital inclusion. More information on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Tracy, your organization, the ALA, promotes libraries and library education. And, of course, you're also very familiar with issues that libraries are dealing with in their communities across the country. The ALA just recently launched a campaign, Unite Against Book Bans. Can you talk about why this campaign is necessary? Yes, I absolutely can. It is so connected to the conversation we're having right now. What we do know is that at this moment of book banning and book censorship, we are far eclipsing the book bans and book censorship efforts that we saw even during the McCarthy era, right? So that was an era in the uh, 40s. Uh, that are really focused on not only banning, but burning thousands and thousands and thousands of books in order to um, suppress certain ideas. And we see that happening again. I say that when we uh, censor books, we censored the communities and the histories that those books represent. Today at the American Library Association, we are tracking a rate of book censorships and book bans that we have never seen before. But there's one thing that is very, very uh, clear is that the books that are being banned today are books that deal with the lived experiences of black and indigenous people and people of color, as well as people who identify as LGBTQIA. And I I don't think that that is a coincidence. Um, Some of these books, of course, uh, are books that have made it into the canon. They're considered to be some of the highest forms of literature. And uh, some of the passages that people are pointing to are sometimes very minor and just less than a paragraph long. Someone talking about an experience, their their memoirs, etc. What I think is happening is that all of these books are demanding justice and they're demanding the rights of the people people who write them and the people that uh, they are being written about, their right to be seen and to engage in civic discourse and the political process. And I think we have to call this what this is. This is a moment where there's a lot of power hoarding and there is a desire to ensure that some people are always othered and marginalized. So I, I see this effort as a thinly veiled effort, book censorship, it's a thinly veiled effort to suppress groups of people Mm. politically and economically and socially. And we've seen some of these book challenges in our state as well, whether they're municipal uh, governments uh, where some residents are are challenging a particular book or even um, in some school libraries. Tracy, uh, when we think about um, you know these debates, uh, you mentioned that you're seeing a rate now that you've never seen before of, of book challenges and book bans. Uh, last week, Motherboard reported over a dozen threats in the U.S. over the course of two weeks. Uh, these are libraries that are getting threats called in. 
And the quote was, part of a coordinated effort to limit information access and comes amid this wave of book bans. I'm wondering if you can respond to that and what local librarians are dealing with here. Yes, well, our 12-member executive board of the American Library Association uh, just sent a letter expressing concern to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, to the FBI, because you're exactly right. When we see, in less than two weeks, when we see bombings or shooting threats that are forcing the temporary closures of libraries in Hawaii, Salt Lake City, uh, Denver, uh, Fort Worth, Nashville, when we see the closures of those libraries, it really is about something else that we haven't talked about, which is information withdrawal which is this intention to really close off information access to groups of people or to the public in general. And we know that's contrary to our Bill of Rights. So we see people who now are taking it to the extreme and threatening violence. And what we do know is that we cannot take those threats lightly. So the American Library Association is extremely concerned. We're concerned for the reading public, for the library public who visits libraries, and for librarians who are continuously under threat uh, in this era. It's such a stressful time. Not only stressful, this is an unforeseen uh, time for librarians and library workers to have to go to work day in and day out and either be confronted uh, with having books confiscated, people coming and taking books. In one library, um, a group of people came in and took all of the libraries that were written by people, all of the books that were written by people of color that were on display. And others, it's targeting LGBTQIA uh, authors and books. And when you now see bomb and shooting threats repeatedly, week after week, day after day, uh, we, we know that it is the American public and our freedom of speech that is under assault. But I think that we all need to stand up and that's what United Against Book Band United Against Book Bands is all about is listeners visit uniteagainstbookbands.org. They'll receive a toolkit, um, calls to action so that they can register their concern uh, for this attack against intellectual freedom and they can stand up for the right to read in their community. And Tracy, quickly, uh, did you receive a response from the FBI after the ALA sent that letter? We do know that they're investigating. Um, We have heard that in uh, at least one instance or two, um, they may have been uh, connected. But uh, when we connect this to uh, some of the other issues that we are seeing uh, in libraries facing uh, threats of violence, we know and we've been told that it's going to take some time because I believe that uh, our letter um, has in some ways sort of push forward a larger investigation that might um, be able to look across many incidents uh, that have been more diffuse and not so concentrated in a short period of time. You've been hearing Tracy D. Hall, Executive Director of the American Library Association. Tracy, thank you for your time on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Where We Live, and today we're focused on digital inclusion, where all people have access to affordable, quality internet access to devices that meet their needs, as well as computer training. And we're learning more about the role libraries have embraced to bridge these digital divides in local communities. Joining us now on Zoom is Melissa Canham-Klein, who's the library director for the Hamden Public Library System. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. I'm glad to be here. 
It was a, it was great to hear from the ALA executive director. But you know, getting back to what you and your staff have done in your community when we think about digital discrimination, which we've learned about so far on the show, what can you tell us, Melissa? Well, it aligns with everything that's been said on your show. When we set out to implement this grant, um, we had learned a lot from the pandemic. One of the things that we had learned is that people who are typically marginalized by society were really impacted in a far-ranging way um, beyond other people. For example, uh, people who couldn't uh, apply for appointments at the DMV because all of that went online were suddenly couldn't do that. Um, We had people who were calling the library while we were offering um, services that were restricted to coming into the building asking to come into the building so they could look for a job or pay their taxes or make an appointment with a physician. And that's what really spurred us to look into getting this grant. When we set out to do the research for the grant, we discovered that you could overlap the way people were using devices with historic redlining. Um, And that's in all of New Haven County, not just in Hamden. And what it showed was people have devices. So on the surface, in some areas, it might look like, oh, everything's fine. But what we discovered were the devices that they were using quite often were a smartphone. And a smartphone is a wonderful tool. I think almost everybody has access to either getting one through Lifeline or being able to afford one somehow. But if you ever try to apply for a job, any kind of assistance, Even looking for information sometimes can be a very daunting thing. And the other thing that we often forget about is when you are using your smartphone for those type of searches and also that type of work, you're using your data. And data is very, very expensive. It's not something that we've included necessarily in our discussion about uh, broadband Mm -hmm. because we don't think of the cost of uh, what we do with our smartphones. So we wanted to make sure people had a way of getting off their smartphones. And so you used some federal money. You mentioned a grant uh, to help with a a hotspot corridor in town. This started during the pandemic. I know um, other libraries in the state um, did things that were similar to that. So can you talk about that need that you met and where you had these hotspots? So thank you. We were able to receive some money through the Connecticut State Library, um, ARPA funding, And we contacted businesses that were along a uh, corridor in Hamden. It's pretty much in the center of town, um, near Circular Avenue and Dixwell. Um, And these were businesses that we knew people were using on a pretty frequent basis. Uh, So braiding shops, um, barber shops, laundry mats. We worked with the Keefe Community Center uh, to identify businesses that would be willing to host a hotspot. A hotspot is a device that allows people to access the internet. And the only thing that we asked was that they keep the hotspot on for 24 hours, seven days a week. And the reason we asked for that is because we wanted to make sure that people could go to their parking lots or outside their business and still use the internet even when their business was closed. Uh, businesses were kind of skeptical at first, like, really, you're giving us a hotspot? What's this about? And what it was about was the library being able to reach out beyond our brick walls into 
parts of the community that we knew needed the internet on a consistent basis. And so what is the status today? I mean, do these hot spots still exist? They still exist. Um, I'm finding that they don't get used as quite as much as they did during uh, the early phase of the pandemic uh, when we first put them out, but they still exist. I think our digital navigation grant has changed a lot of the way people were interacting with the hotspots. So that's been a big help. So tell us more about the Digital Navigator program. So you're also helping um, people understand, you know, what their digital needs are and also making sure that they have these devices so that they're not relying on the, on the smartphones, Melissa. Exactly. So we talk about um, large screen devices when we talk about a laptop or a tablet, for example, because there's so much more that you can do on a large screen device than you can on a phone. Our navigators um, are actually also funded through an ARPA grant uh, that's being administered by the Connecticut State Library and is funded by the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Hamden is one of four libraries that's running a pilot program. We were able to hire three very talented individuals to reach out to the community and the thing that we made sure that we can't do with library staff, and this is what's so important when you're thinking about public libraries and how we're serving our public, our navigators actually go out into the community and they meet the public where the public is comfortable learning what they need to learn. So we have navigators who go to the food bank. We have navigators who go to Davenport Dunbar, which is a senior residence program. Um, we have navigators who will meet somebody at Burger King or at a local restaurant that has Wi-Fi. And of course, we, we ask the restaurant in advance if we can do that, and they're, they're very, very accommodating. Um, so we find that that's been a huge help. We were a little nervous at first um, with the grant because we're actually giving the large screen devices to people to own, and people were skeptical about that. So if you why were they? Lap why were they skeptical? Well, they were like, "You're giving people a laptop. You're giving people a tablet. Won't people take advantage of that?" And that was uh, that was pretty much the reaction that people would just come in to get the laptop or to get the tablet and then just disappear. And what we discovered aligns with what Tracy was saying earlier: is people responded to the navigation work that we were doing not to get a device, but overwhelmingly the reason they sought out our navigators was to learn the skills. And the top skills that they wanted to learn was how to do things that a lot of us take for granted. And that is doing employment searches, composing a resume, actually looking and doing a Zoom interview with somebody, or how to make a telehealth appointment, how to make that secure, how to use my charts, how to find community information so that you know what programs are actually out there in your town to take advantage of, now, Melissa, and how to bank. Uh, Melissa, uh, we heard uh, from Chairwoman Rosenworcel from the FCC earlier, and she talked about this affordable connectivity program. And, and is this something that you're seeing uh, residents or patrons, you know, looking uh, to get access to, you know, given the fact that, you know, so many do still do depend on their cell phones? Well, thank you for asking. We sure do. Our navigators have been spending a lot of time helping people apply for the Affordable Connectivity Program. It is um, a wonderful program. 
it does help people quite a, save quite a bit of money and also helps pay for some other devices if somebody qualifies for that. I think one of the issues with the ACP and one of the reasons it's so important to have navigators available is that it's not an easy process necessarily to apply for. It takes on average about 90 minutes to go through the application and that's with a navigator helping you. Um, also, I don't think it's very well publicized. The different programs that will automatically qualify you for the ACP are uh, not put out there in the public knowledge. And so we're trying to expand that as well. Well, that's good to, to hear uh, that you know libraries is, is one place that people can go uh, for that help. Uh, as you've been hearing, Melissa Canham-Klein describe library director for the Hamden Public Library System. Thank you, Melissa, uh, to, for coming on the show and, and to you and your staff for doing such important work. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up, we're going to learn about a local program in East Hartford's library that helps residents with career development. Are there similar programs in libraries where you live? We want to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Local libraries help connect residents with information and resources. They're also important meeting places for the community. Uh, we were talking to the Hamden Public Library about a hotspot uh, program that they started back during the pandemic. And Jason tweeted, the Springfield Library has a great Wi-Fi hotspot program. My family and I used one for our home internet when it was too cold for Xfinity to dig a cable line. We would not have been online from January to April without it. I just had to check in the device and check it back out every two weeks. Now, in the East Hartford Library, residents can also receive help with career development. The town-run program is called East Hartford Works. Joining us now on Zoom is the program's career navigator, Yadira Jeter. Again, East Hartford Works is a town-run program located in the lower level of the East Hartford Library. Yadira, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us more about the program and give us an idea of the, of the residents who are participating. Sure. So the uh, East Hartford Works uh, started from uh, a challenge, a working cities challenge that was put out by the Boston uh, Federal Reserve. And uh, we initially, our name was East Hartford Connects and we just rebranded. Um, we are now part of the town of East Hartford, the mayor's office, um, and we are located in the lower level of the library. We are a workforce development program that work with East Hartford residents to help with um, employment um, opportunities, training or schooling opportunities, depending of their interest. And we are blessed to be in the library and be able to partner with the library for all of the great resources that they have available for residents. We know that to apply for a job, you have to have online skills and online access. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about the Digital Navigators program. So I know East Hartford Works is uh, helping residents who are searching for a new job, but also giving them the skills to apply uh, for uh, employment, Yadira. Yes. So um, the library launched the Digital Navigation program in December of uh, 2021, um, and they wanted to uh, 
kind of bring this program to families that have students in the school district. They noticed that ever since the pandemic, um, students and parents were having such a difficulty attending virtual school and they wanted to roll out the program to be able to focus on helping this crisis. And so the program, um, we are able to refer some of the residents that come through our doors looking for employment. And of course, as you share, it is really um, crucial to have a device to be able to apply and do, you know, search and um, navigate, right, the systems. And so we are able to connect them to the digital program uh, where they get connected with a digital navigator that helps, you know, um, navigate all of those systems with um, with the clients. I have been uh, blessed to be able to connect, um, you know, uh, participants with the program, one of them in which uh, was a 50-year-old um, gentleman that came in through our door looking for employment, um, but wasn't really um, savvy when it came to the digital world. And I connected him to the navigator in less than two weeks. Uh, the participant will uh, come through our doors with his brand new device and showcasing all of the things that he has learned and um and was able to upload his resume, go on interviews and land a job that he is super happy about. Um, that is digital access and being able to provide those access to the people who really, really need them. And um, I think this program is just amazing. Mm, that's a great story uh, to hear that that kind of connection was made uh, to help this individual uh, get the job that that he was seeking. Was this somebody that was, you know, older uh, that, you know, had struggled in the past with, uh, you know, being able to access uh, the internet, Yadira? Yes, he, you know, he was an older gentleman who was out of work for a little while because of an injury and was, you know, uh, re had recovered and was just looking to get back into the workforce world and just needed some guiding. And of course, I'm just blessed to be, you know, uh, that person that could help um, navigate those systems and get him, you know, ready. And now he is happy and working. Um, we see each other all the time. He comes in to just give me updates. And it's just great to, to be able to have provided those services for him. And that digital navigator program, are they also able to assist if someone does have a question about the affordable connectivity program that we've talked about on the show through the FCC that, that helps people, you know, pay for data plans and access to devices, Yadira? Yes, they are able to connect them to affordable con connectivity program. And um, they have done amazing work ever since the program um, launch. Uh, the digital navigators have worked with 170 clients. They assisted 120 with the um, kind of uh, the connectivity um, internet access, and they distributed 150 large screen devices and conducted more than a than 220 one-on-one personalized digital skills training sessions with participants here in East Hartford. Um, the program is East Hartford Center, so they do work with only East Hartford residents, um, but it's just an, an amazing, amazing outcome. Um, the funding for the program ends this week. Um, so for the next year, the program will be funded by the town of East Hartford Ar ARPA dollars. Um, so uh, they have um, no more computers to give out um, for 
residents to own, but they will be um, using some of those fundings to be able to uh, have loaners for residents to use, um, which is, you know, amazing to also have, you know, have the access to give away um, loaners. But I think that it is very important for families to be able to have a device that they could keep. And hopefully they are going to be looking for some um, supports and funding moving forward to be able to provide a computer that families can actually keep for that's, themselves. Yeah, that's an important point when we think about even uh, computer access for uh, kids in public schools uh, who are, you know, they're loaned a Chromebook or another device, and then at the end of the school year, they have to return that, and then they don't Correct. have that connectivity in the summer months, uh, Yadira. You know, I'd mentioned the affordable connectivity plan for people who are wondering about eligibility requirements. It's for your income. If your income is at or below 200% of the federal poverty guidelines, or if you're a member of your household participates in assistance programs like Medicaid, SNAP, Lifeline, or Social Security. Uh, before we end, Yadira, it's good to hear that the, the town is able to sustain this program uh, through ARPA dollars. You know, I'm wondering if you can talk, uh, you know, just maybe on an endpoint of, you know, where you'd like to see uh, these programs um, continue in terms of funding and just the fact that so many people are able to access them in a place like the library. Yes, it is critical for this program to continue. I think that, you know, as we know, the pandemic just has um, showcased or highlighted this um, this crisis of digital, the digital divide, digital access. And I think our families, in order for our families to succeed and to be able to get sustainable income and be able to navigate so many systems that, as we know, now some are just continuing to stay digital, right? There are some jobs that are just con- um, continue to just work remote. There are some appointments in, in their hospitals or clinics that are going to continue to go virtual. This is something that's going to continue for the future. And, and this is exactly what families need is the access as a computer at home, as the digital navigators to help them navigate in order for them to be able to get sustainable income, sustainable, um, you know, um, a, a life with their families where they are, you know, in a way that they can, um, live for the future, right? To be able to grow um, as a unit. So I think that it's very critical. And I, um, you know, say to those who are in positions um, to make those decisions and bring those fundings right to the families who need them, um, I urge them to, you know, think about um, the families that need it the most. Yadira Jeter, again, as a career navigator for East Hartford Works, a town-run program located in the East Hartford Library. Yadira, thank you for your time. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, today's show produced by Katie Pellico. We'll be back tomorrow.